This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid, conversations about how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation. I'd never imagined that I'd be able to go to any school if I was qualified. I'd never imagined I could be president of a predominantly white university. I couldn't imagine being in class with whites. That's how different the world was in the 60s. But here's the point. Um, I was studying my word problems as I was listening to Dr. King. And from that moment on, I always associated mathematics and solving the problems of the world. That's Freeman Hrabowski. For almost 30 years, he's led the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And in that time, he's changed it from a sleepy commuter college into a launching pad for hundreds of minority students, sending them into successful careers in science, engineering, and medicine. This is so great to be talking with you today because I, I think you're an American story. Oh. You're the American story. <laughs> starting with... Starting with your name, both your first name and your last name. Sure. I think I know how you got the last name, but what, what's that story? Sure. You've been doing your homework. My great-great-grandfather was a slave master in rural Alabama below Selma, and he was Polish-American. And my first name, Freeman, comes because my grandfather was the first of the first boys born free. He was not exactly the first, but first generation. He was born right after the Civil War. And mm. it, to show you how close we are to slavery, we go from the 1860s, the late 1860s, and my father's, my grandfather's birth, to, um, believe it or not, to 1910 when my dad was born. My father, my grandfather was a little older. And then I'm 1950, and here we are. And so I'm Freeman Rabowski III. So you knew your grandfather who was yes. one of the yes. first in the family born free. Free, exactly. Wow. Exactly. On both sides, I'm, yeah, 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 very much so. They were all, because my parents were older when I was born, uh, they were educators and, and were working to get to a certain point in their lives, and so they were both older. My dad was over 40 when I was born. And the reason I think it's the American story is because it's where we came from, where we've come already and what the future is that you're helping create, which is spectacular in my mind. Thank you. And I thank, thank you. you for doing it. If you don't mind telling it one more time, tell me that story of sitting in church that day, because that sounds like a seminal moment for you. <laughs> you, you, you really do your homework. I'm but impressed. I, I want to hear it again. I want to hear it <laughs> to my ears. So I'm sitting in the back of church, 12-year-old kid, not really wanting to be there, uh, doing the two things I love most. Uh, my parents placated me with food and my math. I loved <laughs> the math. I was doing word problems. I was, I'd skipped a couple of grades. I was uh, in the ninth grade, about to go to the 12th grade. It was in May of that year, 63. And I'm doing word problems and I'm eating, eating M&Ms, the good kind with the peanuts. And all of a sudden, <laughs> that's the human story, right? All of a sudden I look up and this minister is saying, if the children participate in this peaceful protest, 
all of America will understand that even our kids know the difference between right and wrong and that they want a better education. And he said, and they'll be able to go to better schools, meaning the white schools. And the only thought I had was that I was so tired of those hand-me-down books. We had some great teachers. They didn't have the resources, and it was so debilitating. It was just discouraging to get these raggedy books from white schools. And uh, our parents were not allowed to buy our books because we'd be different from other kids, you see. So we all had to have these old, torn-up books. And uh, what happened was I just said, who is that guy? And someone said his name, Dr. Martin Luther King. And went home and told my parents, I want to go. Of course, they said no. <laughs> they said no, it's too dangerous. But the next morning they came in and because I had called them hypocrites when they said no, and they made me go to my room. The next morning they came in and they had not slept. They had prayed all night and I could see they'd been crying. And they said, it's not that we don't trust you. We don't trust the people who will be over you because if you march, you will go to jail. And it hadn't hit me yet, but I, they said, but if you want to do this, we put you in God's hands. And I did go. It was a, it was a, a very difficult experience. And at the same time, it was an empowering experience because I learned that even a child, 12, and some kids younger than I, could participate in the American democracy and could, could make the point that we believe in our country and that we can be better than we are. That was the message. And that day, you 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 went to jail for how long? Five days, five, five horrible days. Twelve-year-old yep. kid. Yep, yep, yep. And yep. you even had an encounter, not only with Dr. King, but with Bull Connor. I mean, you yeah, were I did. You, you were in the mix of all these historic figures. Sure, there's a photo I have in my book on this on holding fast to dreams that that has me in the middle of these kids marching and looking really mean, everyone says. I said, I wasn't mean. I was just a fat little math nerd who was scared. I was just scared. <laughs> and but we and, and the, the children over 13, 14 and older were split to go one way. And those of us under 14 went another way to different facilities. And I, I ended up being in the front of my line. I got there and, and the police commissioner said, what do you want, little nigra? And that was a Southern term. And... Uh, I said, we want to pray. We want to kneel and pray for our, for our education, for a better education. That's what I said. It's sir, S, you know, not sir, but sir. And I was very respectful. And he did spit in my face. He was so angry. Uh, and he picked me up and threw me into the police wagon. Mm. And that was the story. It really was. And you went on with that love of math. Oh, that, that, that's, let's get to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Surely, uh, what the experience did for me was to say two things. One, tomorrow can be better than today. I'd never imagined that I'd be able to go to any school if I was qualified. I'd never imagined I could be president of a predominantly white university. I couldn't imagine being in class with whites. I mean, that's how different the world was yeah. in the 60s. But here's the point. Um, I was studying my word problems as I was listening to Dr. King. And from that moment on, I always associated mathematics and solving the problems of the world. Oh, that's so great. What a, what a great moment. I was always working on word problems. I was just, I mean, we got, my mother was an English and math teacher and my dad loved math. So we were always doing math word problems in my house. Yeah. And so I just remember so well studying the math 
and not being able to solve the problem, but you know how you're working on a problem and you don't, it's the answer is not readily available. You don't get it at first, but you know, if you keep working on it, if you keep working on it, you'll have more understanding and you'll get there, which is one of the points I'm always making to students. Don't give up. Just keep focusing on it from different angles and trying different questions. And that was what Dr. King was doing as he was talking to us in that church. It was about how do we help the country live up to its ideals? How do we get decent people to see how children are treated? He was asking all these questions at the same time that I was studying the math, that I was, and and I've always believed that studying math and science uh, can help us understand the universe and humankind and human behavior. That, what an interesting idea. And you've you, you've combined those those ideas. I can see it when I hear you talk. Yes. Right yes. now I can see it. <laughs> this this combination of your passion for at least two great things. One yes. is yes. math and science, and the yes. other the other is humanity and what humanity can achieve. Yes, exactly. And you put right. them together in this yes. university. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's UMBC is a very University of Maryland, Baltimore County. It's a very special institution. We were founded at such a time in the 60s that we became the first university in my state in Maryland to invite students of all races to come there. And while it was and has always been predominantly white, uh, we did have kids from other races there from the beginning. And so we talked about race. It has been an experiment. I say this in my newest book on on uh, the Empowered University, that it's been an experiment. Can we bring people of different races, ethnic and religious backgrounds together, teach them and teach them how to study together, to work together, to understand each other's strengths and challenges and predicaments in such a way that as the students leave, they are prepared to lead in a an increasingly diverse society. We've been doing it now for 60 years. And the campus is more than half science and engineering, more than half the students are in science. The others are in arts and humanities. And how do we connect those disciplines? Yeah, how do you? Well, it's very interesting. Everybody talks about interdisciplinarity, but it takes a lot to really appreciate how you help a student study um, biochemistry and AIDS research in a Howard Hughes lab on the one hand, while giving that student a chance to understand human behavior and the challenges that HIV patients have on the other. And that it's it's beyond the science. It is about humanity. It is about the challenges that people from different backgrounds face. It's about our behavior. The same way right now, as, as my colleagues and I are talking about, that we are trying to help people understand science and public health and the human condition today. Mm. That disproportionately large numbers of human beings who are from backgrounds that are not as privileged, where they can't be as spread out, for example, or where they've not come to appreciate or understand that the scientists really know what they're doing. You see, this yeah. is a part yeah. of the challenge that we face, that that when you hear from the different media and you get the sense that it's my opinion versus your opinion and 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 one opinion is as good as the next as opposed <laughs> right. to understanding no some people have ye studied for years these issues about viruses and about public health trends and they understand the history from from the early 20th century and the challenges and so we now have information about human behavior and what we should do that can prevent people from getting sick and dying and so this is a time, it seems to me, when we want people to understand how exciting science is and how 
how connected it is to our, our, the human condition and to what happens in the future. It, it's only through training people that we, and having them appreciate expertise, but also to build the skills to have more people in science that we will have not just our country, but around the world, people understanding this is all of us. Science is not about a few privileged people. It is about all of us. That is the message. And that helps, obviously, the the people we call disadvantaged. Yes, yes. But the ones who are equally disadvantaged are the ones in power who don't have access to the so-called disadvantaged. We don't have access. don't have access to their genius. Well, and, and that's it's it's the idea that we have many groups that are underrepresented, African-Americans, Latinx, uh, people from low-income backgrounds, Native Americans, who have so much talent to give us that we, we can't afford to lose any of that talent. We've got to build people up and teach them they can be a part of the scientific enterprise. And in a situation like the one we're in now with COVID, yes. it seems to me that without that point of view, of people who have lived being on the outskirts. Yes. Without yes. their understanding of the importance of extending research to include the whole population. Yes. yes. We're liable to be in a situation where we're not really able to tackle the problem. Here's the point that we need people to trust both the science and the scientists. And if people don't see people looking like themselves, and if they have so many stories involving scientists who've taken advantage of people who are underprivileged or underrepresented, there is not the trust. Just, right. But when they begin to see people who are like themselves, more women, more people of color, then they begin to say, we need to look at this. We need to listen to this. One of my graduates, one of our graduates, is the woman who has led the NIH team to develop the vaccine that is now in phase three with Moderna. An mm. African-American woman, mm-hmm. young woman from a um, rural part of North Carolina who came to UMBC as a Meyerhoff scholar, this program we have for these future scientists of color and some others, an MD, PhD, she's a PhD, went on from UMBC, got a PhD from Chapel Hill, came back and did a postdoc at NIH, and she has led the team. She has led the team. She is known as the one. She is in that division where Dr. Fauci is, and her name is Dr. Kismikia Corbett. And she was on TV, on CNN, and it was unbelievable. When people saw this young black woman talking the science and leading this effort with the vaccine, you could just see minds opening, thinking about the possibilities, and little girls of all races saying, I want to be like her. You know? We need that. We need to have these examples, uh, so that it becomes more not just the exception, though, but it becomes ordinary to see a young black woman on TV talking science. That is the point. Yes. You know, you mentioned that Kismikia Corbett was a Meyerhoff scholar. And I've read that the Meyerhoff Scholars Program is, is the most successful program in the country for preparing minority students for careers in academic research. Can you tell me a little bit about how that program began? Sure, sure. Two things happened. Number one, uh, I met a wonderful gentleman whose name is Robert Meyerhoff, who is a actually an MIT-trained engineer and a businessman and philanthropist in Baltimore. And two, the campus was trying to find someone to support us in figuring out how to have more help more of our African-American students in this predominantly white setting to succeed in science because they were not doing well. 
they were just not doing well in science and engineering. And a part of the issue had to do with academic background, but the other part was a challenge we have in America, how to work with people of different groups to help them excel. And so we had this bold and hairy vision, to use Jimmy, Jim Collins' words, of not only helping them to survive in, in STEM or in science, but to thrive and to go on and get PhDs and MD PhDs. That was the idea. Uh, and um, we started uh, with a small group of 19. We've now graduated about 1,000. We, we have about 300 in the program at any given time. And most important, we now have produced more blacks who have completed, gone on to, from Harvard to Stanford, to complete MD PhDs than any university in the history of America. We are the largest producer of blacks who go on to complete MD PhDs. And we now have students on the faculties from Duke to Hopkins to Stanford and many other places. That's the Malhoff program. And Bob Malhoff is an amazing philanthropist who is mid nineties and still knows more about the program than anybody. He's amazing. He knows about the kids. He knows about their performance, all kinds of things. And so we've got that great philanthropist and others who work with us. And we have replicated the program at uh, Chapel Hill and Penn state with funding from Howard Hughes from the Howard Hughes medical institutions. And most recently um, uh, we're really delighted that Chen Zuckerberg is replicating the program at both Berkeley and San Diego. That's great. But I understand that with all your students, UMBC makes a special effort to avoid letting them get bored with what they came in excited about. How do you go about that? Well, there are several issues. Number one is about the fact that kids sometimes even in high school become bored. We need to connect the science to real life work to help them understand connections, whether it's in math or in chemistry. Uh, at the same, I, I studied um, uh, competitiveness in science in other countries. And I looked at what uh, people do in Germany. I was in Baden-Württemberg every year looking there and in Japan. And uh, the apprenticeship program, for example, that the Germans have uh, with these kids who were not going to universities, but the kids had on white jackets and they would go coats and they would go and work in companies mm. and they were paid for it. Mm. And they were at what level of their education? They were high school, high school level in chemistry. They were probably 11th grade, something like equivalent to 11th so grade. So they were doing the work. They were doing the work. And when we tested them compared to our AP chemistry students, the German kids did better than American kids. Why? Because the science was real. It yeah. was connected to the life and living they'd be doing. It wasn't just about a test. It was about concepts they had been able to grasp and to do well. Now, in this country, one of our challenges is many kids want science, but they get to college and the majority leave science within the first two years. I chaired the National Academies Committee on Underrepresentation in Science. It didn't surprise anyone that only 20% of underrepresented groups, blacks, Latinos, certain Asian groups, um, who began with a major in science or engineering, left it within the first two years. Literally 80% leave and only 20% remain. For whites, only one third of the students who begin with a major in natural sciences and engineering will graduate with a degree in that area. And for Asian Americans, quite frankly, overall, it's only 41%. Uh, the first response from the academy, from universities would be, well, it's a K through 12 problem. Because you see, we tend to blame every other level. So universities <laughs> blame high schools, high schools blame middle school and elementary, elementary schools blame the families, and the husband says it's the wife's 
part of the family. That's the problem. <laughs> we all blame somebody, right? So, so and she blames the babysitter, and that's it. And, and uh, but what we did as a, a group, and this was almost ten years ago, was to look in the mirror at ourselves. And here's what we found: that even high achieving students who go to some of the most socially prestigious universities in the country leave science within the first year or two. And the reason is they tend to get a C in the course. And while they got an A in a course beyond science and other areas, and they got discouraged. And so my TED Talk focuses on success in science. And what it says is we've got to get beyond the weed out culture. We've got to stop thinking most people will not make it in science. Only 5% of American college graduates have degrees in science and engineering compared to almost 11% in Europe. If it were not for people coming from other countries here to grad school, we'd have a major problem with infrastructure in science. So we need to be, and that's for every race, and that's where UMBC has worked to change the culture, to put more emphasis on active learning, as you were saying. Students can't sit back and simply listen to a lecture. They're working in groups. We use applications from the biotech companies on our campus, for example, mm -hmm. and students have roles they play. One person is uh, a provocateur, another person is the technologist, and they have all these work, this, these different responsibilities in the Chemistry Discovery Center. And so it's much more active work. And then students actually publish in referee journals as undergraduates. Amazing. And then they get to see the fun of science. And therefore, 40% of our students of all races in science will go to grad school or to medical school. And that makes the difference. You remind me of my unfortunate experience one summer trying to study chemistry. Uh -huh. And First of all, I never really got to do anything in the lab because I started off breaking my fingers on the glass pipettes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Cutting my fingers. I was oh. bloody. Oh. But I kept thinking, why are they making me go through all these steps to arrive at the same result that this other guy did 50 years ago? Sure, sure. It's, sure. it's like learning a routine that has already been done by somebody else. It's sure. Not, none of you is in it. You know? I hear you. I do hear you. And you have them doing actual work. They are indeed. Is it is it, is it the whole population or is it mainly the Meyerhoff kids? No, um, uh, the entire freshman class goes through the Chemistry Discovery Center, anybody in science. And they all are working in groups of four. And they have different roles and they change these roles. And we get real-time evaluation of the work. And we use the technology to help a great deal. And it makes a difference. It really does. And there's the heavy emphasis on problem solving, but it's also on group work. You know, if you think about the, the scientists in the best of labs in the world, they work in teams. Yeah. And yet we still sometimes make kids feel when they work with other people, they're cheating, as opposed yeah. to having assignments and work that allows us to work together. I often teach people about programs like uh, Criminal Minds, when they're trying to solve a murder and each person keeps asking questions. They're asking questions and feeding off of each other. We need much more work that is group oriented. Understanding each person must grasp the concepts, but we learn much more when we talk in the workout. Right, but now, and this fosters a sense of collaboration that That's they can right. take with them all their lives. That's right. That's but what right. are you going to do now as you go back to school in the COVID environment? How will you achieve that kind of close-knit collaboration? Sure. Uh, we are using technology in the same way that I'm looking in your face right now, and you can see my face as we're re interacting. We're using the technology to open the minds of people. It's a 20th century notion that you can't do some things like this with technology. And that, of course, there are experiences that are one-on-one -on -one or that may be without technology that are wonderful, but it is very possible 
for a group of students to work on a platform and to solve problems together and to have different roles and to use the chat function and quite frankly, to have a faculty member observing how they're doing that. And we have spent long, long hours for months now with faculty doing even more professional development to know how to be as effective as possible in helping students grasp concepts online. So 90% of our classes in the fall will be online. Now, when we have some classes in labs, we'll have just a few people there. Others will observe them through technology and doing it. They'll, you know, we've got to keep the social distancing, health and safety come first. And because we all, I think we all believe this next few months is going to be a challenging period. We have to have other ways of continuing to do the teaching and learning and research that takes into account we're in the middle of this COVID crisis. Just can't have everybody back at one time. But there are ways of using science and what we've learned through um, experimenting, quite frankly, with teaching and learning that are helping us right now to be even more effective in the fall. Most important, and we say this in our book, listening to students and their reactions to what we're doing and then making changes in the approach as a result. In some cases, you did that really well. Can you do more of that? In other cases, that really sucks. <laughs> Is there some other way to do it? So creating an environment in which people can be honest and saying, I was able to get that concept from that, or I didn't get that concept from there. But that, most that, important, changing our mindset. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like there's a perfect example of you're applying math to humanity. Yeah, 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 because yeah. you're talking about a Bayesian approach. Very to nice. Changing your changing your point of view as the situation changes. I appreciate that. You see, you just want to give me goosebumps, you see, by talking <laughs> to math. You see how I, I always say I get goosebumps talking to math. <laughs> well I got goosebumps talking to you. I really really enjoyed this. This Thank is so you, great. I Thank wish you. we had more time to talk all day. Thank you. You know the one thing I tell Americans is that we have to stop thinking that we don't like math. I would rather people say, I'm still working on it. You know, a good, a, a healthy mindset uh, says, well, I may not have been as good at it in high school or in college, but I'm still interested. I still want to learn. We have to tell our students, that our children, yeah, you can get it. We just have to keep working at it. I mean, the more you work at it, the same way that I'm studying French right now. I never thought I could be good in languages, but I'm je parle français. I mean, we have to keep that learning environment, whether about science or about music and playing the piano or about mathematics, and as opposed to thinking, oh, I'm just not good in that. Because that's, that's, that's not true. It's just not true. We just have not had the right support in learning how to solve that word problem or learning how to speak French comfortably. Well, à bientôt. J'espère que ça sera très vite. Oh, merci, monsieur. Monsieur, plusieurs étudiants à l'UMBC parlent français couramment. So, mes étudiants et moi, nous parlons français chaque jour. Chaque jour. Voilà, voilà. <laughs> Thanks so much. Great Thank to talk you, to you, Alan. Thank Please, you when, 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 listen, when things are better, I want you to come to campus, and I promise you, you'll be inspired by my students and colleagues. You really will. I, I bet I will. I'm inspired by you already. It's, Thank it's, you. It's really great. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Alan, this has been more of an honor than I have said. Uh, you, you, <laughs> you know, my parents... My parents would uh, are now both in heaven, but they they are smiling right now. They're not believing that I have truly arrived. I've had an interview with <laughs> I have truly arrived. You have no idea. You have no idea how much we loved you as I was growing up. Wait a minute, truly arrived. <laughs>
I had to say that as a black kid from Birmingham. I just, 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 <laughs> just the truth, real truth, real truth. Thank you so much. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Codley Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in technology and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Freeman Verbowski has been president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County since 1992. He's been named by Time Magazine one of the 10 best college presidents in the country. His books include Holding Fast to Dreams and The Empowered University. His TED Talk, Four Pillars of Success in Science, has had over a million views, and it's well worth checking out. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Bob Kahn, president of the Codley Foundation. Philanthropies can do things the government can't do. I say to our science program officers, go take risk. Failure's allowed. Absolutely. Try it out. If you fail twice and three other times you hit home runs, that's a winner. Don't worry about it. Bob Kahn, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.